Hey, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? The real Mugabe died some years ago, and this is just a bloody double in his place, but they couldn't face it. I have having him replaced by anyone else to keep the state credible. Mugabe was always flying to Singapore for medical treatments, and there's all these stories about the mysterious rituals these Singaporean doctors were doing with Mugabe's barely living carcass. Mysterious, you have a mysterious power. So today we're talking about the coup that has terminated Robert Mugabe's 37-year rule in Zimbabwe. As people used to joke in Zimbabwe, who'd go first, Mugabe or Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger, who also seems to cling to power despite widespread disgruntlement? Well, now we know. It should also be noted that demonstrators in Harare carried a placard reading, Mugabe worse than David Moyes. Now that's a damning indictment if I've ever seen one. Sorry, by the way, if these football references are going over your head. We're getting straight into the politics. So this is what you're going to hear over the next 80 minutes. First, we've got some deep context on Zimbabwe, the history of the national liberation struggle, Mugabe's coming to power, and the economic devastation that has hit the country. This is courtesy of special guest, Professor David Moore at the University of Johannesburg, an expert on Zimbabwean history and political economy. Then from around the 23-minute mark, we shift to the contemporary situation, the coup and what comes next. We chat to Professor Chipo Dendere, a Zimbabwean political scientist at Amherst. And finally, we dive straight into the political debate about the broader global significance of all of this. Is Zimbabwe going to have its Sisi moment like Egypt has suffered? What's the purpose of liberal democratic window dressing for authoritarian regimes? And is Africa a country? Okay, that last bit's a bit of a joke, but you'll soon see why. Pleased to have you with us. Hello, politics, my old friend. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Um... To get started on this issue, could you maybe give us some background on the Rhodesian state, its composition, how it came about, uh, and then subsequently the war of national liberation? When nationalist movements in Africa threatened the colonial power, um, the whites in, in Rhodesia were powerful enough so that they could hold back. And they actually declared independence, an illegal form of independence, the unilateral declaration of independence from England, because England wanted to decolonize. They basically didn't want to run these colonies anymore. But the um, um, uh, whites in Rhodesia thought, no, 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 we don't want to give way to the nationalists, so we'll run our own country. So from 1965 until 1970s and 1980, it was was an illegally independent country, and the war for national liberation was going on. And around that time, I mean, what was the state of the anti-colonial movements, liberation movements at that time? Um, of course, there was a, a kind of broad pan-African um, movement, but uh, but what was the state of it in, in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe at the time? Yeah, in Rhodesia. Um, well, it's interesting, Robert Mugabe taught high school in Ghana, and he got quite infused with Kwame Nkrumah's um, ideas. So... You know the national. I mean, there were there were strong trade unions. 1948, there was a huge railway strike. Um, there was resistance against Setsi Fly um, um, treatments and that sort of thing. But the nationalist movement really it was it formed as as a as a party. 1957, it split in 1963 into two main liberation parties. One called Zapu, Zimbabwe African. People's Union, that was the original one, allied with 
the ANC in, in South Africa. Um, and the, the group that split off was called ZANU, Zimbabwe African National Union, which was not led by Robert Mugabe. Robert Mugabe was third or fourth from the top. Um, and so from quite early on, you know, the, the, there were these splits. So, so, um, so oh, sorry, sorry. So, so David, can I just um, just ask you how did how did Zanu come to predominate? How did kind of bringing this towards Mugabe? How did he end up coming to power? Well, that is kind of interesting because in 1971, uh, in Zambia, a group of young Turks, you could call them, challenged the leadership of Zapu. They they were they were ahead of the game up until about that time. Zanu was pretty small, um, and um, for a number of reasons, including well, these young Turks were actually rebelling against some ethnic ethnic uh, conflicts and leadership problems in Zapu, and Zapu didn't recover from that very quickly. And uh, in 1972, uh, there were liberated zones within Mozambique, and so the Mozambican Freedom um, um, Frelimo Front for the Liberation of Mozambique said to Zapu, look, you guys, we got some space here for you. Why why don't you join us? And Zapu wasn't ready to take it up. They were they had fallen apart. So Zanu did. Zanu really got their push in about 1972 and they could they could invade um um Rhodesia from the Mozambican side and and gradually got um more powerful. And that was at a time when um Mozam that was 74 or 74, 75. So around the end of 74, Mozambique and Angola uh, gained their freedom, their liberation, for a number of reasons, partly because soldiers in Portugal staged a coup, socialist-oriented soldiers. Um, so there was a worry in that region that South Africa would be surrounded by um, communist countries because the MPLA and Filimo in Mozambique were allied with the global, uh, you know, the Cold War story. So there was an effort to to create a détente, uh, to create a moderate leadership among the Zimbabwean nationalists, um, which South Africa had something to do with it, Zambia had something to do with it. That created a whole bunch of conflict, but it also resulted in the release of many prisoners, political prisoners from Rhodesia's jails, including Robert Mugabe. So in jail in the early 70s, Robert Mugabe had... There was sort of a coup in prison. Robert Mugabe became the leader. But more interestingly, for you know, for people interested in left-wing politics, a group of young um, guerrilla soldiers took over the war in Mozambique. So, because there was a leadership vacuum, um, and they also tried to unite the two different um, armies: the Zapu army and the Zanu army. And so in Mozambique, these young radicals, extremely intelligent, well-trained militarily, um, carrying on lots of ideological debates um, among themselves, and, you know, their leaders didn't like this. Um, they actually started up the war again because there'd been a ceasefire at the end of 74. So there were lots of conflicts within the liberation movement in that period in the mid-70s. And this is where Robert Mugabe became very, very good at balancing all of these ideological, generational, and ethnic divisions. And I think this is eventually what brought him down. 
to kind of jump forward a, a tiny bit, I mean, what did Mugabe represent? What was his political project? Um, you said there was a period of kind of moderation and, and conciliation um, because of South Africa's fear within the context of Cold War rivalries. So, yes. who was Mugabe in, in the in the the larger uh, in the larger fixture mm-hmm. of of Zimbabwean politics at the time, or Rhodesian, really? Well, he came up to the top. He got his leadership. They 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 had a there was a big conference in Geneva in October 1976, and he had convinced the West that he had he followed the guerrilla soldiers. So he'd eliminated, well, he hadn't quite eliminated this threat yet, but he convinced the West, uh, the power brokers, the Henry Kissingers, the um, Anthony Crosslands, um, and, and, and so forth, at this conference in Geneva, that he had control. And he also managed to bring in a number of exiled uh, Zimbabweans who were students, who were activists in, in the West and so on. He brought together a number of, of different, you know, potential factions at Geneva and then went back to Mozambique and and threw all these challengers to him in, in prison with the help of Samora Michel, the president, the new president of, of, of Mozambique. So he really did get to the top um, by about the middle of 1977. So what um how would you summarize, I guess, in perhaps in these early years when he's first come to power, what's what's Mugabe's political project in in essence? Well, very quickly the political project was eliminating the opposition, which was Sapu. <laughs> um and that's what's called the Gukuruhundi War, the uh, spring rain that washes away the chaff. And that eventuated in some people say 20,000 Endebelli people being killed in horrific circumstances. Um, and it's very interesting, again, in Cold War terms, that um, the West didn't seem to mind this at all because Mugabe was seen as anti-Soviet. He, the Russians were the last ones to get an embassy. Um, the Russians were seen to be supporting Zapu. And Zapu the opposition party was linked with the ANC in South Africa and South Africa was still fighting for its freedom. Now in the minds of people like Margaret Thatcher, the ANC was basically controlled by the Russians. So they were quite happy to see Mugabe squash any opportunities for the ANC to have a base in Zimbabwe. Um, But the sort of the thing that threw that through a wrench in the cogs or whatever you want to call it, was the North Koreans who were training the were the, 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 the most vicious brigade to um, um, to wipe out uh, the opposition. Now, that's, aside from Cold War politics, that's interesting because the current president of Zimbabwe, Emerson Munangagwa, and we'll have to talk a little bit about his getting to power. Anyway, he got to power through a silent coup in the last week or so right he was one of the main there, there it wasn't just him of course but he was one of the main architects of this of this uh massacre of this almost a genocide mm-hmm. but certainly i can't see why i can't see how very many people in Matabeliland, which is that that part of the country would be very happy to see him in in power now um but at the same time people who who talk about socioeconomic welfare policies and so on, uh, 
Zimbabwe was spared the ravages of structural adjustment, this, the neoliberal policy changes that happened in the 1980s. Um, they were spared that because I think the West wanted to give them a soft ride because they were seen as pretty important in terms of the Cold War in the region. So Robert Mugabe and, and his party, which was by then called ZANU-PF, was kind of lauded throughout the the left in 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 the world for having you know free education, good health care, free health care if you earned less than one hundred and fifty dollars a month. At that time, the dollar was worth more than the American dollar, um, and and so on. Though schools were built and and um, things were looking kind of nice until the nineteen nineties when the Cold War was over. There was no need for the West to to um, give Zimbabwe a cushion. And they had run up quite high debts on spending on their social spending. So then structural adjustment hit with all the neoliberal um, consequences that I'm sure you're well aware of. High unemployment, no protection for the industries anymore, imports pouring in, um, uh, flexible exchange rates, and and so on. So could you maybe mm. briefly summarize for us what the impact of firstly the structural adjustment policies were, and then kind of more recently the, the economic deterioration that has happened over the past five, ten years? Well, I guess you could say the structural adjustment programs were in the 1990s, and that created huge unemployment as well. That created the basis for the trade union to set up the opposition party. And at the same time, you had the liberal ideologies of post-Cold War coming in, and so lots of human rights um, people were also. So we had kind of an interesting combination of trade union-led party plus um, intellectuals from civil society who were much more liberal. And... and to some extent, I guess you could even you could say the MDC was 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 riven with those contradictions. If we come to the to the post land reform period, I don't think we could say that is is, is structural adjustment. That was um, you know taking land from from private property owners and distributing it to peasant farmers and a few middle farmers and some very rich farmers, but with no private property. Meanwhile. Um, there were policies of indigenization, which would say 51% of ownerships of any of any foreign company would be historically disadvantaged um, Zimbabwean blacks. These were policies that were implement, implemented with various degrees of, of success. But yes, um, because there was so the linkages between the commercial agricultural sector, which was largely white, and industry were so tight, you know, tobacco, farm equipment, all of that sort of stuff. Basically, industry dried up. So when you say 91, 92, 93% unemployment, well, that's formal employment. That's the working class. That's the basis of a real opposition. Mm -hmm. That is gone. People have become, they're working, but they're informal, right? There are vendors on the streets. They are um, selling vegetables in the markets, which often get, um, the, even, even sections in the street would be marked off by ZOPF thugs and rented to vendors. There were youth gangs and still are. Chibangano, they call them, PF mafia youth gangs roaming all over the place. Um, it, 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 it's a pretty pretty violent place in, in all respects. And, 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 and you know, the, the interesting thing about 2000, end of 2008, 2009, when they had a government of national unity, 
pushed basically on both parties by Tabo Mbeki, who was then the soon to retire or be pushed out president of South Africa. So we had a government of national unity and we had no Zimbabwean currency anymore. We just had the dollar. Now, a few months ago, possibly six, the the dollars were just running out. There was, there was a complete liquidity crisis. Zimbabwe has moved in the period of a decade and a half from the most hyperinflationary economy in the world to the most uh, liquidity, liquidity deficit country in the world. Basically, there was there was going to be no money, so they 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 introduced this thing called a bond note, which was ersatz money, loan, some loans from the African Development Bank, some electronic um, um, transfers, which were kind of unreal, and treasury bonds that the banks were forced to buy from the state, which would have never been you know paid for. So according to some sources on this side, there would have been no money to pay the army in a month. Wow, so man. I think you know this this sort of coup has been there's been there's there's been planning for this thing for the months and months. It's just the moment of its of its eventuation that uh, is a bit funny. Um, so in in light of so now, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, in light of both the political repression and the dire economic situation, um, to sort of wrap this up, I mean, what do you see as Mugabe's legacy being? effectively and and actually and to follow on from that is there actually anything worth defending in it there is this ideology that some scholars over here called me mugabeism and and there is look over the long durée of history nation states have to evolve um develop on on their own steam and you know if you Maybe a hundred years from now, the peasant, you have a very strong peasantry, a strong capitalist class, uh, agrarian capitalist class, and you know we kind of started at year zero in 1997. Maybe you can't just have an industrialization process which is, which is managed by by whites. So race and class get tied up here in very intricate ways. But Mugabe was able for a long time to. African elites, anyway, to kind of think he was a pan-Africanist. The legacy is going to be very, very mixed. I, I, I think he, he, he's lived out his legacy. You know, maybe if he'd retired earlier and if he'd managed to get the agricultural um, system working, managed to get some money together from the West or from China, he might have had a much better legacy. The current ruler, Munangagwa, is saying interesting things. He's saying he will compensate. The white farmers who still haven't been compensated for their land and talking the language of the world bank he made a speech today which was like anybody from the world bank would make the imf is talking about coming in i think there's the the, the british are talking about cooperating with the china chinese because they're worried china has the most investment now in in zimbabwe we hear rumors that china can fund an agrarian revolution through subsidies and so on. I'm not quite sure if they're going to get into that too heavily, but um, certainly, you know, DFID, the um, Department of International Development, I think Rory Stewart is your minister for African affairs. DFID certainly cooperates a lot with China. Um, and this could be if everybody wants to have a happy ending. Um, some sort of Chinese, Chinese and British cooperation on how to bring this economy back. This is the language Munagag was talking is very liberal. He's not talking any more this 
radical indigenization language that Mugabe was talking about. One wonders how how Mugabe could have stayed for so long. Mugabe had such a hold over people. So I think it, it's, it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very interesting for the region if if Zimbabwe takes off in any way. There's probably a million Zimbabweans down here in South Africa. Uh, certainly um, in England, you know, there's a lot of Zimbabweans, professional Zimbabweans all over the world. If somehow a, a good cater of, of really, really smart um, Zimbabweans were, were lured back, that would be great. Apparently there are some United Nations funds that, that can, you know, bring back technocrats, I guess, um, um, and, and, and tied over the, uh, the uh, economic uh, difficulties of doing that. There could be some really interesting things going on. Of course, while these interesting economic things are going on, you still have a lot of people wondering about a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for all the, the um, repression and, and killings. People, of course, would be talking about the um, International Criminal Court, even though Zimbabwe never signed the Rome Treaty. So the you know the human rights people wanting what justice for the past will will be certainly nailing their flag to the post. But I, it looks like inside Zimbabwe, people are so happy to see Mugabe go. People are so happy to hear Mnangagwa say things like, "Let's let's just be pragmatic." Uh, you know, I I would I would I would be. Phew. In, in spite of what everybody knows about a very, very tough military, I think there could be enough international consensus and maybe consensus in the country that look let's let's get this let's get this thing moving. I think the the desire uh, among Western liberals has dissipated a lot in the twenty five years since the end of the Cold War, and liberal democracy just doesn't take off overnight. Um, like they expected it to. So a lot of the idealists, I think, are in the in the in the back seat now, and there seems to be a lot of um, favorable sentiment towards people like Paul Kagame, and so some people are saying, "Oh, Emerson Monongago could be another Paul Kagame." I don't know. If you look at the the way in which the elite, the crony capitalists in Zimbabwe, have accumulated huge, huge, huge amounts of wealth from the diamonds, from the foreign exchange blitz in, in, in the earlier 2000s. And they don't look like an industrious bourgeoisie developing. They just look like spendthrifts. But right, yeah. who knows? All right. Well, that's fascinating, David. I'll have to end it there. But thanks very much for sharing your insights with us. Great. Well, it was it was an engaging conversation. Thanks very much. All right, that was Professor David Moore. Now we talk to Professor Chipo Denderi about the contemporary situation. So jumping straight in, Chipo, um, could you explain a bit about the background of the coup? Um, both on one side, who is Grace Mugabe and the G40 faction around her, and who's the new president, Mnangawa, uh, and what does he represent? Do these factions actually have um, some political content, some political distinctions between them? Uh, so if what you're asking is if these factions have ideological differences, then no, right? So there are no substantial ideological differences between the G40 faction, which um, was led by Grace Mugabe. And, you know, by led, she was the face of it. I'm not necessarily sure that she was the 
the idea behind it. Most people would say that Jonathan Moyo, who most people haven't talked about, uh, was the mastermind of the G40 faction. For the longest time, Jonathan Moyo has was the instrumental sort of mastermind for all the big policy changes within ZANU-PF. So that's always been his role going back to 2000 uh, with the media restrictions in the country. Even when he left ZANU-PF and then was brought back in, I think he was sort of like the the brain behind ZANU-PF. And so for the G40 faction, their argument was that they wanted intergenerational change within ZANU-PF. But of course, the question is they wanted intergenerational change and yet they had endorsed Robert Mugabe for presidency. So that's kind of interesting there. In defining the G40 faction, Robert Mugabe has, has defined them in speeches before, but he's done it in Shona. And he said that the G40 faction was this band of individuals, mostly men, who thought, well, you know, if Barack Obama could be president in his 40s, then why couldn't we lead in our 40s? And so from... 2013, if you will, if you look at, at the structure of ZANU-PF, the youth had become central to ZANU-PF. So in the last year, they had 10 interface rallies just for youth. They were called the youth interface rallies. And then Grace Mugabe's position really was sort of the weeping chief or the attack dog, uh, sort of using, you know, I've written about this in the past that her communication style, her ability to embarrass people in public was sort of used as the front line of G40 whipping the war veterans or the older generation into shape. And then on their part, the Lacoste faction, I don't think that it was quite as organized. Um, I think maybe Emerson Nagawa always thought that he would become the next president, or at least someone within the older ranks thought that they would become the next president. If you think about it, Emerson Nangago was just 38 years old when Zimbabwe gained independence. So you've got this entire generation of people that are now in their 70s who've been waiting for 37 years for their turn to lead. And so for them, at least from the comments by the war veterans chief, for them, the idea that you would skip people in their 70s and go to take leadership um, from people in their 50s was really quite unacceptable. And to, so what extent, it, to what extent was it then a problem that this the, the younger G40 faction trying aiming for generational renewal, to what extent was it a problem uh, or viewed as a problem that they hadn't participated in the liberation struggle, that they didn't have that legacy um, to call upon? Oh, absolutely. It's a huge problem. So right now what we have in ZANU-PF is what the generals announced and what even Robert Mugabe alluded to in his non-resignation speech is that we are now in what's called Operation Restore Legacy mode, right? Operation Restore mm. Legacy. And I don't remember which speech the general gave this, in, but it's called Operation Restore Legacy. So think about it. Which legacy is being restored, Right. And the problem with Robert Mugabe wasn't that he was not a hero himself, regardless of what the war vets say. Anyone else that you talk to will say that the problem was that his wife was trying to redefine the liberation struggle. Mm. That they were saying that it doesn't matter if you fought in the 70s or the 60s. It doesn't matter. We can also be comrades, right? So we can be comrade Grace Mugabe. And yet, Grace Mugabe was herself a very young person 
during the liberation struggle. So they were trying to redefine what it means to be a comrade and at the same time sidelining the war veterans. Uh, and so I think that the generals and and the war veterans took offense to that. I was listening to a report by Father Konori who mediated this and one of the sticking points was that Grace was called in to apologize to the generals for the statement that was led by that was read by the youth leader, where they say that that statement insulted the generals. Right, that's interesting. And I mean, getting to the details of the coup, I mean, how would you term the coup? I think you've called it a guardian coup. Could you tell a bit, uh, tell us a bit more about what you see this meaning? So a guardian coup means a coup that is engineered by the military, arguing that we're just coming in to take care of uh, one, two, three things, right? So in the Zimbabwean case, it's that we're coming in to take care of the criminals that are around the president. In fact, today, Chris Muchangwa at an event in Harare said, well, this wasn't a coup, but if you want to define it as a coup, it was a coup against the coup that was already there, right? Right. <laughs> but is that, is that not a justification that one often finds, I mean, around the world uh, for, for military coups, that it's a temporary measure to take care of certain issues and then, then the military will step back? So, so that... could, I, could I jump in here? Because there was, there was something I wanted to uh, mention in relation to this. One trend we've seen recently around the world is this kind of sense of good governance coups, as they've been called, uh, which is to say um, military intervention to uh, bring the country more into line with international expectations of what counts as effective, efficient kind of technocratic um, government, liberal modernization and so on. So, I mean, is that what you mean by a guardian coup or is there a difference? No, no, no. So that's the same, right? So in political science, guardian coup is the common term, right? Uh, so, you know, starting with Egypt, right, that that was a guardian coup. The language or how you define it might differ, but you we no longer see the type of coups that we saw in the 70s where the army general comes in and says that I'm now the president, you know, I'm now the man in charge. There's always this veneer or this underlying belief that we're doing this to preserve democracy. So I suppose, is it given the fact that it's restoring the kind of legacy of the military veterans, is it about... Is it about kind of trying to bring Zimbabwe back out from the cold then? Or is it, I mean, it's essentially the same elite in charge, like you say. There are no ideological differences. How significant is it as a guardian coup? Uh, I think the, the significance of it being a guardian coup was that there would be some restoration of civilian rule, which we've seen that there's been a, a restoration of civilian rule. But the... I think the tough question that the new government faces and the military themselves face is, well, how much influence will the military continue to have? So ideally, what we should have seen was the military go back to their barracks, right? After after everything was sort of tied up nicely, right? After Robert Mugabe resigned, after um, Emerson Nagago was inaugurated, they should have they should have picked up and gone back to the barracks because. Zimbabwe is not in a state of emergency. They say that there's no state of emergency. They say that the only threat to democratic governance were people in the G40. And yet, uh, it's now week two, and we still have the military on the streets doing the job that the police should have been doing.
Right. Yeah. And I mean, what's been what's been the role of of the opposition at, at this time? I mean, over the past, let's say, over the past five years, um, has there been much opposition? Have there been any protests over the past years? Have there been any kind of foreshadowing of of things changing? So I think the opposition was caught unaware <laughs> by the by the coup. I think we're all watching the events unfolding in ZANU-PF, and we thought that they would get resolved amicably. Uh, in codes in ZANU-PF amicable way in, at Congress in December. But I don't think that the opposition was prepared for this turn of events. So in the last, I know you want to talk about the last five years, but in the last month at least, I think they're dumbfounded. They don't know what to do, right? In the last five years, so after the 2013 election, the biggest opposition party, MDC, split once more. So Tendai Biti and Morgan Tangrai who had been together through the trenches from 2000, through the 2005 split, through the 2008 election, fell out with each other. And Tendai Biti formed his own party. MDC fired people. And I bring this up because when they fired people, they lost at least 10 seats in parliament, thereby weakening their legislative position. So... so sorry, yes. so in, in, in this context, how would you how would you characterize the Zimbabwean left um, do you think there's there's uh, been a lot of protests over the past few years? Um, and if not, has there been too much re- repression or too much demoralization? Where, where do you see the, the lefters going, I guess, is the question. Well, I think what you had is that once the... So the reason why I was bringing up the splitting after 2013 is that then you, you started to see sort of these fissures with opposition, this, this trouble. And people, particularly urbanites, who had always been the base for the opposition, started thinking that, well, the opposition has lost its... It's momentum. And then last year, we started to see the rise of protests that are motivated by uh, citizen organizations. And these citizen organizations were not necessarily working with the opposition. So you can't even think about it as a left to right spectrum. What these people wanted was just change, right? And which might explain why we've seen that those people that were leading some of the citizen movements have been quick to embrace what's called the new ZANU-PF. Right. So you had people like Pastor Ivan. Uh, Of course, now he's been acquitted of all charges. But through his sort of uh, activism last year, we saw serious uh, citizen protests that were squashed by the police and the military. But even when citizens were speaking up, the opposition wasn't speaking up with the citizens. I don't know if that makes sense. So you weren't seeing Morgan Changre coming out and saying, I support Pastor Ivan, for example. Uh-huh. They might have done a couple of rallies together, but the opposition certainly wasn't protesting along with citizens in the same way. And these citizen protests, I mean, demanding change, I mean, were they primarily economically focused or were there political demands made around democratization or something like that? So most of the citizen protest was about economics. It was just about the economy is failing, things are hard, we can't pay tuition for our kids, the internet is costing too much, we can't get money out of our banks. It was very much uh, economic based. So over the last three weeks, one of the things I've been doing to continue with my research is testing the pulse of people, right, to say, well, if Emerson Nangagwa is able to revive the economy, would you vote for ZANU-PF, right? So you start out with the educated people, the ones that were supporting Pastor Ivan. And I'm telling you that more and more people are saying, I don't mind um, 
I don't mind ZANU-PF. I don't mind uh, ZANU-PF that is under new management. I'm reading a, a post right now where someone is saying, I have no confidence in the opposition and I would rather have Mnangagwa as things stand. Right, that's interesting. I mean, and you say you've been kind of taking the temperature. I mean, what have you found more broadly? Is there is there support for, I, I mean, economically at least, I think are people kind of in such a situation that uh, that any kind of um, economic proposal which seems to have any legs would gather support? Absolutely. I think anything that would bring relief economically would would find support. But again, I, I really want you to understand that it's not just that people are not loyal to the opposition anymore. It's just that the opposition is not there, right? They, they're not speaking out. The first time we had from Morgan Changrai since, um, you know, a few months ago was the day of the impeachment. And then he's been quiet since. And then we've seen some younger people like Nelson Temisa who've spoken, but but the opposition is really, really quiet. And I cannot figure out why. In the past, we used to say it was because the media was controlled by the state. But now there's so many avenues for independent media, like using Facebook Live. Zimbabweans are very active on Twitter and Facebook, if you've noticed. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if somebody really good has a Facebook Live, in in 10 minutes, you've got 20,000 people online watching. Wow, right. So Zimbabweans are obsessed with their phones obsessed if we were doing this interview online right now there would be at least a thousand people watching (laughs) maybe we should have done that (laughs) (laughs) no for my own sake no i'm such a shy academic believe it or not (laughs) but um so so they're just not there and i'm not sure what it is uh yesterday uh somebody who's now you know become a twitter friend he put together a proposal of what the new cabinet should look like because Zimbabweans are obsessed with social media, in a couple of hours it had gone viral, people saying that this is a proposal from the new government. And so him and I were chatting and I was saying, have you heard from the opposition? Uh, Did anybody write to you? No one from the opposition reached out to him. In fact, people within ZANU-PF were now claiming the document to be theirs on social media. Right. And I mean... you say that yeah. the, the the opposition's been pretty quiescent. I mean, is there a fear of repression? Has there been much repression post-coup? Uh, does there feel like there's been a relaxation? I think it's more of a relaxation because what you were hearing, the, the groups you were hearing from were these citizen organizations, right? It's it's individuals. So you've got people like uh, Fadzai Mahere, who's now in the opposition as an independent candidate, but she's not in sort of the traditional opposition. And she's been, you know, she's been talking, using Facebook. But when I say the opposition, I'm talking more of like traditional MDC that Whereas these other young people that are running as independents have really taken to social media and using it to get their ideas out there, their faces out there, the traditional MDC party and the other MDCs have not done that. And I, and I, I don't think it has anything to do with fear or, or repression. It's just that for the last year, they've been AWOL. Right, but there, but despite that, there just seems to be a, a bubbling up of enthusiasm, or at least perhaps some expectation that things might improve. Zimbabweans were just looking for a break, if you will. If you can think about it as as a people that were so exhausted, just three weeks ago, you could no longer get twenty dollars out of the ATM. Right. In order to get to the hospital, it was about a five-hour wait. Right, and and every Zimbabwean, myself included, will tell you a horror story of 
a relative who died at the hospital whilst you were waiting for them to get admitted. So any kind of change is welcome. And what people are very excited about with the soldiers on the streets, so you might think, well, why, why are people excited that there's the military on the streets? They're excited because the police had become uh, very aggressive. I don't even know what good word to use. They were more than aggressive. They were terrorizing people. You know, children were scared of the police. I would be driving and my 13-year-old niece would say, Auntie, look, there's the police. Should we hide because of the bribes? Because right. of just general impunity on the part of the police. So with the, the soldiers, I'm following even popular people like Trevor Nube on social media who are saying it feels so nice to drive in Harare without the police. So, so I mean, t- talking e- economically, and I guess moving on from this a bit, do you think there is a, a po- kind of a positive scenario around what can be done to restart the economy? I think restarting the Zimbabwean economy would not be difficult. After the 2009 uh, government of national unity, you know, it almost felt like things changed overnight. There was food in the stores. So what's the problem with Zimbabwe is how politics interacts with the economy, right? So when the government puts in these restrictive policies that are unfriendly, investors are eager to come to Zimbabwe. In fact, uh, you know, the British had already sent a, a mission uh, the day before Robert Mugabe was set to resign. And from what I hear, they were very disappointed when he didn't resign. And then, of course, he resigned and Roy Stewart was in Zimbabwe already talking investment. So so Zimbabwe has a lot of investors that are waiting to come in. That will not be a problem. The question is, what kind of uh, indigenization policies the president, the new president, would want to put in place? Is he going to emphasize that every business that comes in should, um, you know, split the investment 50-50 with Zimbabweans. But there are plenty of investors that are waiting to come in. And once he's dealt with corruption, which he says is, you know, top on his agenda, and yet we all know that part of that is getting towards the people that disagree with him. But once they've dealt with corruption, the ease of, of doing business will be very high. So if if that's more towards the positive scenario, I guess the question we're all kind of probably want to ask is what's what do you think the negative scenario well, so, is economically so the negative is that right now we've got people that are in jail right for cases where it's unclear that the constitution has been followed we don't know to what extent um there was violence during the coup that's something that people are not really talking about we've seen videos that uh, bonam gabe's farm was burned so I think on the human rights side of things, uh, we should be mindful that there's going to be a lot of aggression. As much as people are loving the soldiers, uh, today I was getting reports that the soldiers were being quite aggressive with people in the markets, um, people that they felt were breaking the law. So it's good that the soldiers support the new government, but we know that in any country, it's never good if the soldiers overstay their welcome in civilian spaces. And what happens when the young soldiers also realize that there's money to be made by asking people to pay them bribes? So what happens then? But I think one of the things that we really have to watch for is 
the rights of the people that are not being talked about in all of this excitement. Mm -hmm. Because Zimbabwean history is that there's never been public violence in Zimbabwe. Like violence has never been public in the way that you've seen in other parts of the world. Even in 2008, the violence wasn't public in the same way that it was public in Kenya. It's always private, right? The 1983 violence was somewhat private, which is why it took such a long time for the world to start talking about it. So that would be the worst case scenario. In terms of the economy, I really don't think they can do badly. I think they have a lot of goodwill on their side. Like I've mentioned, the British that are very excited. Uh, South Africa is also very excited uh, because South Africa has carried the burden of uh, Zimbabwean immigrants, even though they've also benefited. So I think on the economy, it can't get any worse. I think it's on, on, on the human rights side of things. So I just want to push you a bit um, just to wrap up then, because on the one hand, you, um, you seem kind of optimistic and you point to the kind of the exhaustion in Zimbabwean society, ordinary Zimbabweans desperate for change. On the other hand, you draw our attention to the um, fact the military is still on the streets. You draw our attention to the kind of um, history of uh, the Guardian coups. And you point to Egypt, for example, as one which isn't obviously, um, you know, that isn't a model that you would, anyone would wish to follow. So, I mean, how, given, you know, given the fact that you, you're familiar with the outcomes of these kinds of transitions, how confident can you actually be beyond the kind of popular enthusiasm for change? How confident am I with the popular enthusiasm for change? Well, I mean, how confident can we be past the popular enthusiasm? So, I mean, we can recognize the popular enthusiasm, but on the other hand, you draw attention to the fact that these transitions are often very problematic, the fact the military are on the streets, the fact the military might develop an appetite for power and for economic gain. So it seems to me there's a contradiction in the way you're setting up your the way in which you're portraying the issue. And I just want to push you a bit to see you know, how you reconcile that contradiction between popular enthusiasm and the disturbing kind of undercurrents that are still at work. Okay, so, I, you know, it's not a contradiction, right? It's the complexity of politics that often people want a nice story. So you go, think about Ghana when Rawlings first came in and people were excited. Most people think of Rawlings as a hero, but we also know that when Rawlings was dealing with corruption, he held public executions, which now he's spoken about and says that he regrets uh, that that kind of decision had to be made. Uh, we think about Kenya after Moi's uh, reign, when Mwai Kibaki came in, and Mwai Kibaki tried very hard to deal with issues of corruption, but he couldn't because the same people that were supposed to be arresting the people that were corrupt were also corrupt in of themselves. Uh, then we look at Tanzania, people are saying that Emerson Nagagwa might become a Magaluthi like in Tanzania. And perhaps, but we also know that in Tanzania, they've been a much, much more restrictive government when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to LGBTQI rights. Uh, others are saying that maybe he'll run Zimbabwe more like Rwanda. But again, Rwanda is doing very well economically. We can't take that away from Kagame. But we know that there is great wealth disparity in Rwanda right now. And more importantly, we know that uh, opponents to the president are placed in jail, right, if they don't agree with the president. So I wouldn't think about this as a contradiction. But what I would say is that we have to be cognizant of the complexity of politics in transition. 
to assume that Zimbabwe is going to suddenly transform itself into this uh, wonderful democratic country is to ignore a lot of historical issues that led us to the coup. Right? The fact that we have a president who, for whatever reason, could not compete in fair and fair elections. He could have run as an independent. He could have run against Robert Mugabe at Congress. There were other options. A coup was not the only option for Emerson Mnangagwa to come to power through, right? But he knew that, he one, he wasn't likely to win the election, maybe because he was not popular enough, or maybe because he understood that the, the playing ground is not free and fair. So we mustn't ignore any of that. Uh, and it's not a contradiction. It's just a fact that the politics is very, very complicated. And now we have two different centers of power. We have the military as a center of power, and we have a civilian government where the president hasn't even picked a vice president up to now. He doesn't have a vice president. So if anything were to happen to Emerson Nagawa, we find ourselves again in a much more complicated political process. So, and then, so just then to give kind of a final, more rounded picture, um, who do you think is going to kind of take credit and responsibility for this transition on the international stage? So, for instance, just to give you kind of an example, um, say in Myanmar, Burma, the transition to democracy there um, was taken as one of the high points of the Obama administration. Who are the international figures, leaders, um, politicians who you think are going to try and claim this as a great kind of victory for their foreign policy or as something which they can take credit for managing and overseeing the transition in Zimbabwe? Will it be South Africa? Will it be um, other countries? Will it be Britain? I think right now, if it's a, if it's a competition, it's definitely not South Africa. Uh, South Africa failed. Uh, Zuma, Zuma is not liked in Zimbabwe. Uh, the war veterans were trying to give credit to Sadak, but things kind of resolved themselves before Sadak was even able to make a decision to come into the country. Some people say that uh, the British consulate had been working with the Emerson Mnangagwa team from back in the day. But I think what you're going to find is a very unique situation where to take credit for this would be to take credit for a coup, right? Regardless of how great the coup ended yeah. up. Yeah. So I don't think anyone will openly say that we're taking credit. The framing that we're going to see, at least the framing that I've seen so far, is that the Zimbabwean people spoke. And so people are going to pretend in some ways that the coup wasn't there and we're going to focus on the people's voice, which the people's voice was quite important. But if we frame it as the people's voice, then it gives legitimacy to this government that everyone wants to work with. So we can... so. Formally, credit cannot be given to, to the military, right? Because the moment yeah. you do that, it delegitimizes a government that countries like Great Britain are looking forward to working with. And you don't see a CC waiting in the wings then? A what? A CC, like the Egyptian, um, the Egyptian general who took over. You know, that's something that I've talked about, but not publicly. I, I was just thinking that at the inauguration, the general got a standing ovation I was, you know, the general is now known as the people's general. He's now known as General Bay, uh, hashtag General Bay. That's how people refer to him. He is possibly more popular than Emerson Nangagwa. So 
I don't know if this would happen, but what if the general decided that he could also win an election, right? I'm not sure that he'll do that, but he is certainly a wild card to pay attention to because he is very, very, very popular right now in Zimbabwe. He's popular with women on social media. In fact, people have been, um, you know, having to caution people that he is a young 33-year-old wife um, because he's become, you know, the, the guy of the day, General Bay. Uh, even little kids refer to him as General Bay. And and I haven't seen that kind of love for Emerson Nangawa. So he's definitely a a wild card uh, that we should all be paying attention to. That's Thank very you. interesting. That's, that's very interesting, yeah. And um, it's interesting also that these, um, despite the coup, that these things continue to be dressed up in, in democratic garb, um, despite um, potentially authoritarian kind of undertones to it. Um, but thank you very much, Shipo. That was fascinating. Um, so yeah, happy thank to, you very to, that you were able to come on and, and talk to us. No, thank you. All right. So we're here now to have a little bit of a broader chat, not just about Zimbabwe, but the broader themes. So we've got here myself, Alex. We've got George. Hi. We've got Phil. Hey. And we've got returning guest, Benjamin Fogel. How's it? Okay, cool. So just like, let's jump into this. Um, ben, you had a, a point about the kind of um, the nature of the regimes uh, which were w- created and run by the legacy liberation movements um, in Southern Africa. Do you want to say a little yes. bit about that? <clears throat> so, well, we have to think about it in waves. The first wave of uh, decolonization in Africa happens in beginning in the mid 50s, early 1960s. And that produces a uh, set of leaders to varying degrees, which were the sort of fathers of the nation that stayed in power. You can think here of Nkrumah and others for quite a while, and the states were defined through them. Now, there's so much of a uh, account throughout Africa of when the um, heroic leader of liberation transforms into a sort of uh, despot. Zimbabwe is a little bit different. Zimbabwe, like uh, the former Portuguese colonies and even South Africa, decolonized in the late 70s, 1980s, and even leading up to the 1990s, meaning that they, people, the leaders came to power in a different conjecture. In the sense, they came to power after the age of development, state-led development and ISI had ended. They came into power during a period where neoliberalism, the debt crisis uh, are becoming a feature of international politics. Now, Mugabe is really the last of these leaders that's still in power. He was in power for 37 years. And now we, in a period where the original generation of these leaders are either out of power or about to go out of power or about to die in many of these countries, Angola is another place uh, <clears throat> to think of, And now what happens then is you have a national liberation movement, which has become a sort of dictatorial party controlling a one-party state, but they have to find a way of uh, reasserting and keeping their rule going forward. And that has to have some sort of form of internal renewal. Now, I think Zimbabwe is a very interesting case because the army's intervention is being portrayed as a form of anti-corruption renewal, a renewal that we're going to have fresh leadership, fresh ideas, and fresh investment coming in. So with a demobilized or repressed civil society 
and opposition uh, parties in these states, you're having the party itself become a vehicle uh, for renewal. In this case, it's through coups. The coup, in essence, becomes a way of renewing democracy in the party, which is an interesting phenomenon going forward. I think at the end, we really have to think about this in terms of uh, going forward in terms of a more a global perspective is to think of these uh, forms of renewal and anti-corruption politics as part of a set of political crisis which is affecting both advanced Western democracies and developing countries and impoverished nations like Zimbabwe in which the political system is incapable of generating a uh, new narrative, a new narrative of progress, a new vision going forward and Forms of renewal through uh, sort of messianic actions such as uh, coups or uh, looking to a new savior like Trump or Macron uh, is the way that people are going forward. It's right, not so, this, but like so. In, yeah. I mean, in in these in these states with uh, you know one party rule, these kind of legacy parties which came out of the national liberation struggle, amongst people in general. I mean, how much how much purchase does that still have? Because they use that struggle as still the basis of legitimation. Um, I don't know how much whether people kind of buy that still or whether that has like fading relevancy for people, especially younger generations who weren't even alive um, at the point that independence was won in southern Africa. Well, Zimbabwe is, again, the best example of this. It actually had no purchase anymore. It's very hard to find a Zimbabwean who still supported Mugabe. Uh, The majority of Zimbabweans, and I haven't been there since 2014, but I do keep in very close contact with many Zimbabweans of all sorts of backgrounds, both... uh, from all walks of life. And it's very clear that people had given up on the possibility of political change so long as Mugabe was in power. They really thought that history was over until Mugabe died. Nothing else could happen. So the the unexpected nature of this coup that it came from, no one thought it was going to happen. The fact that he could actually be removed from power opened up people's imaginations to think maybe something could be different. And it's that sort of restarting of history in Zimbabwe not the narrative of, uh, you know, we are still the party of liberation, which has traction among younger people, because now they think maybe other things can change. Maybe there'll be more investment coming in, new job opportunities. Maybe there'll be a government of national unity. Maybe there'll be something like that. It's really the people have become so demoralized and so demobilized living under these forms of really, uh, to various degrees of repression, personalized rule without political alternatives for so long people retreat into private life they try to look after their their own families their own people they give up on politics it's the capacity to imagine a different future that these sort of acts trigger and regardless of what the future they're sketching whether it's just more investment is what gives these projects traction or i think will give this project traction to varying degrees. I have no idea how successful it will yeah, be, I mean, but th- that's th- really what I'm seeing in Zimbabwe. That's something, yeah, that's something that our past guest, Shipo uh, Dendere, who we just spoke to now, kind of gave, voiced that quite well, that she's been talking to people there, and that there is a real sense of enthusiasm, but it does seem to be a bit hope and changey in that kind of way, that it's just merely an opening and that people kind of start to start imagining things, that their imagination is led to run. But I don't know how much concretely there is to go on. Um, and I think Phil kind of probed our guest on the possibility of actually a more authoritarian turn, that there might be the military trying to re-engage. Phil mentioned the possibility of a, of a sort of CC moment as, as, happened in, as a, happened in Egypt. So I don't know if, if yeah. um, you know, if, if the kind of the sunnier, more optimistic view 
has that much justification maybe economically there is because Munangag I'm gonna mangle that name over and over again um Munangagwa um has made overtures to you know to the international financial institutions to Britain to China and so maybe things yeah. will there'll be a bit more investment but um I don't know if politically things will improve that much well, I mean, I think you guys are exactly right to point to this. I think this is hope and change. It's not. Uh, it's a vacuous uh, amount of rhetoric attached to some platitudes about foreign investment and opening up uh, democratic horizons. We don't. There's absolutely in these countries, and this is where it connects again to Western powers, Latin America, other African states like South Africa, is that there's just no credible alternative vision or force for realizing a different vision in these places. There's no. The opposition party, I'm sure you've spoken about with your guests already, the MDC is a bit of a sort of carcass of its former self. It's really degenerated quite some, quite some bit in terms of power under very uh, heavy repression. Um, but there's absolutely no project. I mean, the question is, it's not just a, uh, you know, political project. Of, there's no, it's not exactly like a left alternative right now. It's a credible vision of economic development that would actually work as well. I mean, the world, as far as I'm concerned, is still in a recession of slowdown of sorts. And there's still a crisis of neoliberalism and an inability to imagine a different growth path going forward. You're just seeing the most extreme example in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe already had its structural adjustment period. It already had its experiments with neoliberalism in the 80s and 90s, and it absolutely destroyed the economy, deindustrialized the country. Zimbabwe is now a post-formal economy economy. It's 91% unemployment with an almost entirely informal economy. It's a vision of a sort of a dystopian future if there's no formal working economy that provides jobs. And in that case, you'll have this hope and change dressing up this hope that investment comes in. So I think that's one side of it. The other political side of it is I think the CC uh, comparison is correct in the sense it could become more oppressive. But the difference between CC and this is CC came into power after mass mobilizations removed the previous um had put pressure on the uh, muslim brotherhood and before that the previous government um of mubarak these the, he came into power after a wave an unprecedented wave of social mobilization in zimbabwe you've had comparatively no social mobilization yeah. in this case besides the celebrations after mugabe left it's really in this case it's a palace coup they're yeah, not exactly like these popular forces or even potential popular forces right now that they would have to repress. Yeah, I mean, and to draw another example, which was already mentioned in the previous interview, but maybe it's worth exploring further, um, which is that of Paul Kagame, who's a little bit the kind of the West's golden boy in Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, but where it's a quite repressive regime, but, you know, the streets are clean and uh, and things, you know, seem to be starting to work and so on. And so I guess that's the that's one model, one kind of maybe future prognosis for Zimbabwe, which is not necessarily... Uh, one you'd want to endorse, I guess. Well, um, Rwanda is a very interesting case. Of course, it was uh, devastated by um, the genocide, and Kagame comes in as the force leading um, the sort of Tutsi rebel group that removes the people responsible for the Rwandan genocide, and then proceeds to lead um, Rwanda into a war and increased involvement in the war in the Congo, which, incidentally, Zimbabwe was also involved in. Now, Kagame came in with the moral weight that uh, the genocide provided his side. It was against uh, his ethnic group in Rwanda. But he, his vision of reform is a based on like a combination of what I would call like broken windows development. If you have the streets clean, make sure there's no yeah. sort of homeless people around. 
and also you can present a very sunny vision to uh, Western donors. But at the same time, the economy is developing there. There is a sense that a sort of modernist vision of skyscrapers popping up in the middle of the, uh, the Great Lakes region of Africa, the sort of vision of modernism, we're going to move the country forward again, which really hasn't been seen in a lot of these states uh, since the first few years after decolonization, when there was still some idea that we could industrialize, we could reach the future. So I think in that sense, uh, Rwanda having a, projecting a vision of development, even if it's incredibly authoritarian, still is something that uh, is Zimbabwe could go in that path. But um, as I'm sure your guests have pointed out before, I think the other difference is that the people in power right now are the same people who have been draining the state of funds, looting the diamond mines in the Congo, responsible for the worst atrocities in Zimbabwean history. It's the same people. It's yeah. not exactly like a credible, a new bunch of people removing a previous regime. And, and so corruption, the corruption angle is, I mean, it's, the corruption, corruption is used as a, as a sort of stick with which to beat uh, opponent kind of in a convenient manner. Um, but probably yeah. shouldn't be taken too credibly. The, the idea that he's going to clean away corruption and that you're going to have a, a kind of much more functioning kind of nexus between politics and business or something like that. Well, I, th I think this is something we've we, we've talked about quite a lot. How anti-corruption um, kind of struggles or or politics um, function in in Western Europe. Do you think it's it's too simple to say that this is another example of of kind of anti-corruption politics being used just to replace uh, for one elite to replace a, a previous one? Well, uh, that's it, the difference is it's the same elite replacing uh, somebody who was no longer useful to them. <laughs> It's, yeah. it's, not, it's, it's even but, even easier. Uh, well, in the uh, well, I mean, the comment. There's two things here. I think in I think one of the things is like as in Western Europe, when you no longer have any uh, sort of alternative political vision, if you like the civic virtue and competing for politics in terms yeah. of a credible vision of nationalism development going forward disappears. Corrupt anti-corruption politics becomes one way saying the problem is there's bad people in power. We need to get them out now. This is a extremely sort of bizarre attempt, and it's kind of funny that some of the, I mean, if you look at Twitter right now, uh, Jonathan Moyo, who was uh, one of Mugabe's most uh, infamous apologists, he was a he got his PhD in the United States, he was an intellectual, and then became a Mugabe hack. He's been tweeting all this criticism around the same lines that people are saying about this is a new dictatorship. But look at all the Zimbabweans trolling him because his critique is so not credible too. So in that sense the it's the same problem as in western europe no one has an idea of what a credible future is i mean take away say aside say maybe jeremy corbyn wait uh, so sorry uh, just to jump in ben could you just ex could you just explain a bit so what is he saying what is the criticism he's making and why is zimbabweans trolling him well because he's just such an odious hack but he was saying like this is the <laughs> same guys who killed the People in the in the early 80s that were responsible for like all these deaths, uh, you know, they shut up my house, they kicked me out of the country. These are looting, uh, you know, looting uh, repressive types. But everyone's like, these these dudes were your heroes, like you know, a few weeks ago. <laughs> What's wrong with you? You were like the biggest. You didn't think you were pretending these atrocities never happened. There was no corruption in Zimbabwe. It was all perfect. But now you're like out of power. You're like complaining on Twitter. But I think to bring the discussion uh, to to appeal to people outside of uh, interest, just interest in Africa. I think honestly, I've been saying that Africa and Latin America have been 
the sort of uh, laboratories and projections of possible future in terms of global politics for some time. What you've seen happen in the crisis of the pink tide in Latin America and the emergence of a new right, and then in terms of the complete failures of um, many of these sort of neoliberal development projects in Africa, are possible mirrors into uh, futures for the West. The West in anything is following in the wake of developments in other parts of the world. And Zimbabwe is just probably the most extreme example of the failure of uh, the neoliberal development and then and uh, following it, um, the inability to get the economy off and back running after um, essentially the land reform. It's a post-employment economy in the sense that no one is employed. And that's just a vision of what, you know, in the sort of age of stagnation and inability to imagine a credible alternative to neoliberalism is a nightmarish future. And I think Zimbabwe and the inability to think of a different future there is a mirror into many of the same political crises that you see in the West. Yeah, I think that's, so that's right. Thing... I think there's a lot to that. I mean, in terms of the politics and society of the North becoming much more like the South, um, which is kind of the, the opposite of what would have been imagined at the beginning of the 90s. Um, after the end of the Cold War, this idea that gradually liberal democracy would take over the rest of the world and things would just gradually improve uh, along the kind of best case neoliberal model. But I think there's another thing in terms of the influence of the North on, on the South, so to speak, uh, which is that, you know, with this coup in Zimbabwe, um, which, you know, uh, Chipo called a, a guardian coup, so they continue to dress themselves up in democratic or at least constitutionalist language. Um, I just wonder whether with the fading support for liberal democracy in the West, um, that whether even rhetorically um, kind of authoritarian governments elsewhere in the world maybe don't pay lip service as much to it as they have done over the past, uh, you know, 30 years in the post-Cold War period. Well, I mean, it's become exceptionally cynical right now. Uh, you just have, it's like, it's like basically anybody who's had to write a grant, especially a research grant in academia will understand this. Both sides know that you're bullshitting. You have no idea what you're doing <laughs> until you actually do the research. So it's basically a bad faith exercise on both sides. So in this case, I think the logic is pretty similar. The West yeah. knows it's an authoritarian regime uh, and the authoritarian regime knows it's authoritarian regime. So as long as they both make some sort of token symbolism towards any sort of democratic reform, maybe there's some money that flows. I think the other thing here is that the main power interested in Zimbabwe is China, who doesn't really care for democracy uh, in the yeah, same exactly. way of uh, making those token gestures as the West. And there is a l angle, and I haven't, I can't comment about the veracity of this, uh, that China were the ones who put pressure on the military to act in this way and they were saying that Mugabe has to go if you're going to get any more money from us. So in any case you're also seeing another shift to China becoming a uh, the t basically place where these states are looking for some money for a development project and the authoritarian led state development and capitalism of China is a much more uh, appealing version of development than just uh, another round of IMF administered reforms which have been so devastating to the continent in the past. Yeah. Um Moving on a little bit, um, I think it'd be interesting to discuss how Zimbabwe, how the coup um, and the transition in Zimbabwe has been discussed outside of Zimbabwe and indeed outside of Africa. So primarily amongst like the Western media and kind of commentariat, um, because Ben, you've observed um, 
I mean, on, on the one hand, you've already made reference to the fact that everyone's kind of playing the cynical game of, uh, you know, there's a kind of, this is a, a kind of a democratic transition and things are going to improve, and but everyone's kind of lying about this. But even amongst kind of, on, on the left, there's been an, another thing, which is some people seem to have been defending Mugabe as a socialist, um, perhaps because they don't want to fall into line with the Western media um, in demonizing Mugabe. Therefore, they, they take the opposite side and, and kind of try to dress him up as, as actually have been a, you know, a kind of glorious freedom fighter who should, whose legacy should be defended. So um, I'm, a, I, I'm a contributing editor with a publishing project, Africa is a Country, which is kind of making fun of how, like, Africa, uh, I mean, the name is, like, you know, uh, everyone thinks Africa is a country in the West, but uh, it's kind of, like, making fun of that to sort of make a pan-African media project serious and interrogating some of the political crisis and politics of our day in Africa. But interestingly, so through this lens, I, I, I think Africa functions, and other parts of the global South, but in particular Africa functions as a sort of, Device it it's an it doesn't really mean anything except what uh, the West is not in sort of narrative devices. For instance, uh, for all of the American right and right wing and the British right wing, and then also sort of like uh, you know the sort of spectator or smug type liberals, um, Zimbabwe was the ultimate uh, nightmare story of a corrupt autocratic leftist national liberation reader destroying the country through seizing land from white farmers and it only functions as a device and the tragedy that happened there to beat back land reform and complain about black rule or nostalgia for colonialism yeah. in the same in the same way for a segment of uh i hate to call them this but like they they call themselves the anti-imperialist left because anti-imperialism is a position everyone on the left should take but they sort of brand make it a branding exercise that um Zimbabwe is this heroic narrative of uh, a, of national liberation struggle and socialism uh, and then land reform against this uh, oppressive white uh, agricultural class that uh, was so uh, led the Rhodesian apartheid regime. Um, it basically but both in both cases, no one actually cares about Zimbabweans. Both of these sides are using this Zimbabwe as a narrative device to win moral points over their uh, interlocutors in the West for the anti-imperialist left. This is a chance to call out critics of uh, Mugabe, especially on the left in this case, uh, as uh, suckers for stooges of Western imperialism, don't believe that uh, black people can run a country, don't believe in national liberation struggles, apologists for uh, all sorts of crimes of, that the West has committed against Africa. And then for the right wing is it's a chance to call everybody who sympathizes with national liberation struggles or projects like land reform or even uh, visions of a better, more egalitarian future as apologists for uh, corrupt despots and uh, repressive governments. In this case, no one's actually asking Zimbabweans or Zimbabwean leftists or the political movements or people of Zimbabwe and other parts of Africa what, what they think. There's no actual solidarity. It's just a rhetorical position. No one's going and forming links to Zimbabwean trade unions or what's left of them or what's left of the Zimbabwean socialist movement or the millions of Zimbabweans living in exile wondering what's going to happen with their country. None of these people matter in this device. It's just your point scoring. And unfortunately, yeah. that just and because of the political crisis in Africa and the destruction of so many progressive projects, so many trade unions, so many... Uh, different visions of a more uh, just socialist uh, 
or egalitarian or social democratic or pan-Africanist project in Africa, um, people don't know who to talk to so or not interested in talking to them. And as somebody who's from the continent and who's engaged in the past with Zimbabwean leftists, these people don't exist in this horizon. And it's uh, what could be more colonial in terms of a mentality and to turn a absolute tragedy that which Zimbabwe has been and a uh, series of political events into a narrative device for winning uh, points on people you don't like on Twitter. So um, so I guess it's kind of a general question here that we were sort of talking about a, a little bit earlier. But do you think that, you know, so does being anti-colonial necessarily mean being revolutionary or socialist? Oh, and, hell no. Uh, yeah, I mean, what what does anti-colonial mean nowadays? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think it's, again, I think, uh, to be honest, and uh, I don't believe in the concept of neocolonialism uh, is a valid uh, theoretical description of current power relations in the global south and the global north. Um, I think it's a, again, it's an empty signifier which fulfills whatever it needs. In the current case, so none of these parties, or not none of these parties, most of the parties that came into power, regardless if they call themselves socialist or not, uh, in national liberation struggles were multi-class coalitions led by a uh, national bourgeois or a potential sort of national elite. They were not necessarily uh, people who believed in the same vision of socialism that they subscribed to. They often subscribed to these visions of socialism in return for uh, Soviet resources. But at the same time, it was not necessarily the vision. Anti-colonial, you can be anti-colonial and you can be somebody like uh, um, Naipaul. You can be a, a conservative critic of uh, colonial hubris you can also be anti-colonial and you can be someone like Cabral, a socialist revolutionary committed to building a different vision of socialism in the future. Or you could be somebody like Mugabe, who is an opportunist who adopts what rhetoric suits him at the time. But in the current case, where there are no longer many colonies, Puerto Rico and a few other places might be exceptions, anti-colonialism functions as a, a sort of rhetorical appeal to a certain set of standards. In the West, where it's become quite popular to talk about settler colonialism or internal colonialism and forms of uh, colonial relations continuing when the need to decolonize intellectual spaces or the need to decolonize uh, politics and sort of all sorts of practices. It's sort of become a way of posturing to be more radical and be outside all the sort of implied chauvinism that comes with calling yourself a socialist or social democratic on the left. But in the current case, I find it hard to understand what exactly in Zimbabwe an anti-colonial politics would look like, especially yeah. considering that um, it functioned as such a... Uh, it was Mugabe's narrative was that uh, all our problems and economic crisis infected is the British getting revenge on us for uh, <laughs> having to temerity to seize the land from white people. And, you know, there's obviously a level of... Uh, revulsion at the more radical side of the land reforms but as i'm sure you just guys earlier the historic thing about land reform in zimbabwe was not the fact and not the disaster economic disaster that came afterwards or the fact that mugabe supported it was one of the it was a case in which a uh social wave of social mobilization from below started a process uh of occupying land and taking control of land in a conjecture where people thought this was like impossible so that is the interesting story there. But again, the this rhetoric of anti-colonialism, I don't really know what it means in 2017. Yeah. 
the Zimbabweans who went on the streets after Mugabe uh, was removed from power are not, are not idiots. They're people who have a very profound understanding of the state of Zimbabwean politics in a way that people uh, like us who haven't been living in this, as I mentioned before, uh, almost entirely informal economy and sort of very unique sort of political crisis. They have a better understanding of the contradictions there than we have outside. And we should at least give the benefit of the doubt that people's capacity to uh, to think about potential futures again, which has been restarted in this process, potentially could bear some openings that might take many years to materialize. But it, I think things are in motion again. So while I am skeptical of the chances of the ability of this government to necessarily um, build a more democratic uh, Zimbabwe, I do think that there's a potential for economic growth to pick up again. And I also think there's a potential for uh, new political ideas in Zimbabwe, new political discussions to begin. And that's, that a, lovely, great. And that's a lovely place to that's... wrap up. Yeah. yeah actually, yeah. I mean, you can, uh, there's one more thing I want to say, uh, <laughs> which is basically, um, uh, this is a little plug for African scholarship. Um, Zimbabwe, uh, and also the scholarship on when it was Rhodesia, has produced some of the finest intellectuals in Africa and some of the most important debates within the Marxist tradition, within the tradition of uh, critiques of African nationalism, within sociology and history there is. And I would really hope listeners uh, would be interested to read more. Uh, just Give us names. Some authors. Uh, the late Sam Moyo uh, wrote a number of incredibly important papers on... Um, the land reform process and how it came from below. And he remained one of the last Zimbabwean leftists with uh, any sort of academic position, um, maintaining a left position in Zimbabwe until his death, which I think was last year, or might have been the year before. And I would encourage people to read Samway. Otherwise, authors of the likes of uh, Terence Ranger, who was, along with Hobsbawm, wrote the very famous book, The Invention of Tradition, wrote some uh, incredible mm. histories of the war for national liberation. And indeed, there are many uh, great Zimbabwean uh, novelists as well. In terms of people you should be reading, I would uh, really recommend people uh, read uh, Percy Zivomayo's work. He's a journalist uh, living and working in Zimbabwe right now. And uh, he has a piece on the history of the Zimbabwean left, and the position of the Zimbabwean left coming out in N plus one right now. Otherwise, some of the authors have been featured in Africa as a country, are a number of young uh, pieces coverage of the Zimbabwean coup have been a number of very talented young Zimbabwean academics. And for all the rhetorical appeals I often hear about, you know, we need to read more uh, people from the global south, more women of color, more uh, black authors, less Western authors. I would really encourage people to look into these traditions. They are a number of great intellectuals and people should stop using this as a rhetorical device and just actually read them and discuss their ideas. Excellent. I think uh, we can absolutely endorse that and we can endorse Africa as a country as a fantastic resource. We're actually going to come back um, to Ben and to Sean Jacobs, uh, editor of Africa as a country, another time to discuss um, both what they're doing there and uh, to have a broader discussion about South Africa. So uh, keep tuned for that uh, coming up uh, in a couple of episodes. So in a couple of episodes time. All right. That's been your special Alpha Bunga Bunga on the coup in Zimbabwe. We'll be back on the 13th of December with Angela Nagel talking about her book, Kill All Normies, The Online Culture Wars, and much, much more. So remember to subscribe via your favorite podcatcher app or iTunes. 
Tell your friends. Catch you later.